if you happened to find yourself in a situation where you you have to move to a new city in America because of the pandemic, you're an, an immigrant, you change jobs, like all those very common experiences in the 21st century, there's no go-to-door to knock on. Like, hey, I'm an intellectual orphan, which is an expression so many interintellects use to describe their pre-II life. Where are my friends? Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Anna Gatt, founder of The Interintellect, otherwise known as The II, a global online community of public intellectuals. Anna has created what she calls a city of minds, where seekers of thoughts and ideas are connected through their mental energy. The community hosts online salons that spur some of the most interesting conversations on the internet. We talked to Anna about how to solve the supply problem of public thinkers, how hosting salons can change social behavior, whether or not you should talk about money, sex, and politics at a dinner party, and much, much more. From my understanding, the Interintellect is an online community of public intellectuals, and it seems to be European-based. And I, I know you online because your Twitter persona is this sophisticated, glamorous European salon hostess. So I'm in sweatpants and also like, you know, those very thick socks. Oh my <laughs> so God. It's just, I, I would like to for the record that I am semi-sophisticated. Like we all are on Zoom. I'm sophisticated from the waist up. <laughs> so, you know, just to be clear. <laughs> and then she has like these dangly earrings. Zoom is the new pants. <laughs> <laughs> like the funniest sentence I heard this year. Um, yeah, Zoom is my new pants, so it's very fancy. <laughs> so do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your journey and how you came up with the idea? Sure, super happy to. So, you know, Interintellect is a very counterintuitive result of a very long process. And I kind of believe that if you want to come up with something really original that doesn't exist, you kind of have to go through that winding path of experimentation. So I was born in Budapest in Hungary in East Central Europe. I come from a TV family. So most people in my family worked in television in different departments in different fields. I grew up in living rooms where every day people would come together from different departments and cook something up and then go and do it. And then millions of people would consume that. In terms of my academic background, I'm 100% humanities. Uh, I have three master's degrees, one in English, one in uh, philosophy of art and one in uh, theater writing. My linguistic background was focusing on dialogue and moderation, mediation, linguistic alignment, how to diminish noise between people, how to open people up psychologically to be receptive to each other's thoughts. So, you know, in hindsight, you can say like, oh, everything was kind of like a predestination for her to be like, it was not intuitive to me at all. I worked many years in music. I was managing rock bands and I worked in music journalism and art journalism Oh, I feel like every time we look back, it always connects. But what drove you to start the community for public intellectuals? The very first incarnation was more of an academic project where, you know, it was in 2016. And, you know, I was not really happy with how things were turning out. I was in London and I felt like Europe, London, the US, the whole thing is just like not going too well. And I felt... I just have to do something with what I know to help. So I sit down on my bed in October 2016 and basically took stock of what I know, what I have, what I studied. I felt there was a call to arms where it's no longer like, oh, what is a cool job to have or whatever. It's more like everybody drop everything that you do and look at how you can contribute and just like give the world what you are and what you know, because everybody's knowledge is needed. 
at first I thought I would work for other people. And then because I didn't find the kind of projects that I thought were needed to exist, I just started it. I thought it would be more of an uh, academic project. Then there was a phase when I thought it would be very application-based. So it would be a software-based company where the software would, you know, an AI would basically be able to um, create this kind of linguistic environment that I felt was needed. And I think two years ago, when the final version of the Internet Act was born, that basically came out of my understanding that I had been wrong and that I had went about it the wrong way. I had worked on creating a more peaceful and productive public square from a standpoint of defense or defensiveness, where my ideas revolved around creating products and spaces and services that would protect people from the more negative sides of life on the internet or life in the public arena. Something in 2019, early 2019, made me understand that that's not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to create more open spaces where the curation and the management of the community and the reward system in the social interactions are geared toward a more positive set of behaviors. And then that's going to be enough to attract the people who are currently missing that from their intellectual life or who are just missing having an intellectual life altogether, which is a lot of people, right? I become a normie with my in real life friends where I will just be blah. You know what I mean? Weird. You know what I mean? It's like I have my in real life friends. You go have brunch or you go to the farmer's market and, and there's no like intellectual angle to it. And so I totally know what you mean when you crave it and you want to be able to call someone and ask them like, Hey, what is, what, what is the Gordian knot, you know, or what is a Straussian moment? I would never be able to do that with my in real life friends. But it sounds like what the II offers is that space where you can freely explore intellectual topics. I love that you say that you're a normie with your, um, with your old friends. I'm kind of a normie when I'm alone. Like when I'm alone, I will go back to like just sitting around in my sweatpants and eating chocolate and watching Big Bang Theory. That's what I do. Um... And then I'm, I'm more sophisticated, maybe, in, in, in interaction. I think there is this kind of devil's contract in, in, in contemporary society where we give so many people a university education. We give so many people a, a glimpse into higher registers of knowledge, you know, on Wikipedia, on Substack, on podcasts. But then when you actually want to discuss these things with people, you have incredibly toxic environments where even the most theoretical discussion will devolve into some kind of personal name calling or you know it will be very politicized if some people are very lucky and they are still in touch with university friends or they have jobs in fields where they can count on their colleagues um, similar information intake habits but there's no go-to place if you happened to find yourself in a situation where you, you have to move to a new city in America because of the pandemic, you're an, Im- an immigrant, you change jobs, like all those very common experiences in the 21st century, there's no go-to door to knock on. Like, hey, I'm an intellectual orphan, which is an expression so many interintellects use to describe their pre-II life. Where are my friends? I think just like you know, with the economic model, like removing the arbitrariness of whether somebody can afford to be a public educator or not by just creating an economic model, meaning like this is no longer up to blind luck. The same goes to finding intellectual companions. I was super lucky because I happened upon this paradise of intellectualism on Twitter And I never really had a bad experience on Twitter. But that was because I was just super lucky and accidentally smart in how I curated my feed and my followers at the beginning. But I am conscious and I was very conscious that this is, this was just luck. And I was thinking, you know, if you want to create something that scales and that will eventually enable hundreds of millions of people to participate in it at the same high quality, then we have to remove these. And I'm saying this as running a company based on like super luck-based in many ways live events right where so many things can happen but you know we can allow that unexpected element because the foundations are very fixed what's the difference between the first iteration of the ii and what it is now 
So my old startup was building an AI mediator that people could drop into personal conversations to help. And from then, I went to thinking about this automated entities in wider conversations. And then I understood that it's actually the wider conversation that needs to be constructed in a way that it can be a positive experience and a constructive experience. So I basically, early 2019, I started working on the environment as opposed to interfering with what people would be doing in other environments. What is that environment? It sounds like you're basically setting the tone, right? So how do you do that? Yes. So um, the type of media that we came up with in this very long one and a half year, two year period of playing around is called the II Salon. And the IR salon can be online or offline. It's currently always in English, but it can technically be in any language. We run these in five time zones. They are hosted by members of our community. The new attendees can also become members of the community and start hosting themselves. And this is a three to five hour long thematic conversation with a very digestible, short reading list of articles with some kind of facilitation in the room and equal speaking time. So basically, we have a room with 30 people from all over the world, all walks of life, all ethnicities, religions, professions. You discuss that topic and you get to share your thoughts and hear about other people's thoughts and find friends, find collaborators, find love find a job, and find anything that may happen between humans when they come together in uh, in peace. I remember we had that one conversation, and I think I brought up this one video between Thiel and Hoffman about how like the West is kind of losing public intellectualism, where there's just fewer public intellectuals, whatever that means now. And you had this crazy idea at the time, which was like, you know, we can turn ordinary people who crave this part of their life, right? Everyone has some really deep interest and give them a stage, like make them Susan Sontag effectively. What do you think about that right now? Is there actually like a dearth of like public intellectualism? And I know you don't like the word, but is that the reason this is like such a resurgence of this public thought that people are now experiencing? I love the term public intellectualism. It's in my fundraising deck right now. It's on the first page. It's on the cover. We are humans and we all have intellects, right? Some people argue that even some animals have intellects. Having creative thinking, associative thinking, collaborative thinking at our avail is probably the most amazing thing about us as creatures. So for me, using the term intellectual, intellectuals, intellectualism, intelligentsia even, it would be very hard to convince me otherwise. (laughs) Some people do. Uh, Some people think that um, it would send the wrong message. I think it's the best message. We're saying you are an intellectual and we are interested in what you have to say. In the interintellect, nobody's going to ask you whether you went to an Ivy League school or happened to be a 60-year-old white man on the East Coast. You can be, but you you will be in the same community with people from very different backgrounds who have very similar talents to you in uh, producing and distributing intellectual content and creating interactions around them, right? So the public intellectual of the 19th or 20th centuries could come from two places, right? Either this person came from traditional academia or he, sometimes she, but very often he, came from traditional publishing and then later on established media. So these were like the three labs where the intellectuals were created. I think it's not very um, far-fetched to say that these three institutions have stopped producing the relevant public educators that we need today. That's why when you go to established outlets, you still find the same people that were there 30 years ago. And some of them are still very relevant. And there are amazing people who produce fantastic interpretations of the world accessibly until very late in their careers. But the fact that we don't really have a renewable supply of this is worrying because there should be public intellectuals at every age from 18 up, right? Or 16 up or 14 up. Because we need everybody in helping us understand the world. How the world works right now, it's a hard nut to crack. And we want to hear everybody's opinion in solving one problem in it, interpreting one problem in it accessibly to a wider audience. This is what intellectuals do, right? So they set aside time from the workday 
so that other people can go and be, you know, doctors and waiters and parents and do whatever else we want to do on the day. This person is specialized to understanding certain things more deeply. And then we'll come back and create content that makes you a more empowered, more confident participant in a liberal democracy, right? So there's no free press without the public intellectual. Who is the public intellectual? Is it somebody who is just moonlighting with their thoughts on Twitter? You know, uh, someone who is like the Slate Star Codex guy who's a psychiatrist and has a secret blog. Like, who is the public intellectual? You touched upon something super, super important here just to go. So what the internet has figured out wonderfully is access to knowledge and production and distribution of intellectual content, right? So anybody can go on Wikipedia or on Gutenberg and read anything they want, technically, if they have linguistic access to that, or just translate it with Google Translate, and then have uh, the, the, the work ethic and the, the ambition to create something out of it that can be accessible to, the, to a wider audience. What we haven't figured out in the internet age is the curation of this content. How do we make sure that you, Jessica, will happen upon the best minds on the internet? If you want to start looking, then on the one hand, you will be served by a bunch of algorithms that are optimized for outrage or clicks or selling you something, or you will still get the very atavistic recommendations from the, you know, academia publishing media system that used to create the old tiny intelligentsia. And so to me, figuring out this pipeline of both creating a continuous supply of the best minds who do want to work this and the way to find them, that seems to me the core of solving this problem, right? To actually indeed enable somebody who doesn't have any of the pedigrees that tended to be needed for doing this job and create an economic model for this person so they can actually do it. Because most people don't have the financial liberty to just say, I'm just going to write, or I'm just going to host internet tax salons five times a day. Most people have children and rents to pay and jobs to do and careers to worry about. Not to mention that we are in the middle of a pandemic where the foundations of our lives are being renegotiated on, on many different levels, right? Wherever you happen to be in, in, in society. So for me, it was like, let's create an economic model where people can do this, they get all the help, they get the platform, they get a community of an immediate audience of, the, of, of training and feedback and a continuous improvement and match it with an economic model so they can decide how much they want to do this and make a proportionate amount of income with it, right? So you can do an intern tax salon once a month and make a couple of hundred bucks with it and it's nice to have, or you can do it as a full-time job, right? And just to recap, the economic model is... So the economic model is that we sell tickets and give the, most of the ticket sales to the hosts. What I found most interesting about what you said, Anna, is that there's like almost two parts to the problem, which is it's the search that kind of comes in. And you know what you said about one thing that you knew that not a lot of other people knew is you, know, you can just expand the age gap and you can have 14-year-olds and you can have 81-year-olds and you can, they can still coexist, right? There's nothing stopping people just with age. And there's this weird ageism all over the world of like, you know, if they're over 50, right, they're suddenly either very revered or they're just non-existent. So the search part is one part of it. But then what I really like also, because I went to the physical salon that you had in um, Menlo Park, I think, and it was pretty awesome. And one thing I saw was there's a lot of training and becoming like a, you know, whatever you would call a public intellectual in that way of like, just like Mozart is practicing the scales or like, just like Michael Phelps is swimming. People need some sort of training to kind of completely expand their potential. And so both of those things, I think, are really fascinating. The training that you get once you're in the community of like, okay, this is how you act. This is how you have a good discussion. Like both of those things, I feel, are very, like, you can teach those skills, but nobody really has tried because no one has thought there's like an economic model to pursue this stuff. That's so true. And I think, you know, what we call training is maybe 90% encouragement. And very detailed encouragement at that, right? Uh, of encouraging somebody to trust themselves, to know that however they look, whatever their age, their ethnicity, their mother tongue, their physical location, whatever they studied at uni or high school or not even that, 
that there is a way to find the people who are interested in discussing that topic and learning from them and that we are there every step of the way with the host. It's just an incredibly beautiful thing for me to follow this journey with so many people of just first, you know, like people get acquainted with intern tags, first kind of stumbling into a salon, not knowing what they will be getting. And then, I mean, the craziest thing really about the salons is like, while you are sitting at the salon, you see all the people booking for new salons while they are in the salon. Like, I just see the bookings pouring in from people who are currently in the conversation. And I'm just like, focus on the conversation. You can book after. Um, because it's like, you just want to continue doing that, right? And the, the, the vast majority of the people who stay and come back will continue hosting as well. In terms of like retention, we keep around 50% of our salon attendees who will come back for more within six months. Like we've only been doing this for six months in this way. So we, we've seen that, but we keep 100% of our hosts. There's an incredibly rewarding, challenging, beautiful experience to start hosting and finding your responsibility and the joy that comes with it in teaching the public in this live, non-recorded unexpected, you know, kind of magic way that is live entertainment, right? And everybody wants to do it again. So I have a question. I know that with communities, whether it be with a private members club or any other community, it's all about the quality of the members and how they contribute. Say, for example, the Soho House model, where they keep it super exclusive they set the tone, they know who their demographic is, and they kind of seed the community with the creme de la creme with the hope of those people bringing in their friends and growing it, but keeping it pretty much cohesive. And they always say like-minded individuals or something like that. Is anyone able to join the II or how do you keep your membership curated? Oh, I'm very (laughs) anti-like-minded. I'm very like pro-ideologically diverse. I mean, like-minded people will find each other in the community, of course, because the internet like, technically is a meta community. So every single host develops their own community, right? But we don't filter for like-minded at all. So how people usually get involved with the internet act, there's a way to get into the community at this stage still, because we don't really have our own platform yet. It's in the making, so it's still pretty manual So we do have a direct referral system right now where people can bring in their friends or spouses or loved ones. You know, it's very, usually people bring in people very close to them. People usually get involved through just coming to events and making friends, getting referred, and then either starting to host or first hanging out in the community. If you start to host, we will add you to the community automatically. Right now, still, there are two ways to do it when the platform will be live, which will be hopefully by the end of this year, the transition will be complete. Um, It's going to be the hosts and even subscription holders who will be in the community. So it will be a little bit more based on how many events somebody either hosts or goes to. When we started the online community in February, we didn't know how events-based we would be. Then it became clear in the next couple of weeks that for our audience and the people that we attract and the referrals of the referrals of the referrals and our entire vibe is this safe but unexpected. This kind of paradox that you come in, every salon is a bit different, every host is a bit different, every salon is a different topic and it's not recorded. There is something magical about the the unexpectedness of the live performance in it. It's also something that I really enjoy doing, our team really enjoys doing, where we feel that we have, you know, a huge knowledge to lend to prospective hosts. So uh, it's quite fortunate that we that we went in, in this direction. Is there like a training manual? And also secondly, whenever they host a salon, do the topics come from the top down? So no, topics do not come top down at all. People apply to host with topics. So they say, this is what I want to do. And then we have an editorial team that will help you 
you know, is the title the best? Is it too long? Will anybody understand? If you're doing a series, how is it going to be possible that if somebody didn't come to the first two salons, they can still come to your third, make it very open, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't get involved in giving topics to people at all. So we have a huge variety of stuff. There are a bunch of salons that I didn't even know that thing existed. And then you suddenly there's like this entire community around our community. Like, you know, we have like gardening and stuff that I know absolutely nothing about. Like for me, I have cut flowers, as you can see behind me. There's a reason for that. Like the gardening track inside the entrance act was not me. Okay. There are a bunch of people learning Russian. There was yesterday, there was a salon about ESG investing. I have no idea about ESG investing. It's great. You know, so, um, so it's the members bringing their own interests and their own culture and their own points of view on things. We have manuals. There are training sessions. Uh, basically, every salon that I host is a training session in the sense that I do it to continue representing the original format. So my salons are the more, most traditional intern tech salons in the sense that we have this perfect equal speaking time for everybody, that they are exactly three hour long, et cetera, et cetera. But every salon host takes this format into the, their own direction. So if you go to Visa's salon, for example, it's five and a half hours. Everybody drinks whiskey and he talks and everybody like lovingly listens to him. If you go to Olina's salon, she uses slides and she's a designer and she will be very visual. Some people create things during salons and they say, okay, so let's write a letter to ourselves. There's an output. So it always depends on the host. You know, we have a couple of pillars to our brand that I am absolutely adamant about. For example, that we are non-political. So you can talk about politics, you can talk about political science, you can talk about the history of politics, you can talk about libertarianism or, you know, communism, but we don't do today's politics. It comes up, obviously, like it's humans living in the world, in the real world of wherever they are located. We don't use that as a framework for topics. We also don't do any marketing activity. So you can't sell anything in Intrinsect. We are very much an infinite game. So we never do salons that serve one goal. We don't do dating salons. We don't do job searching salons. It should be infinitely open to continuation. That's why it's so relaxing. That's why people come with a glass of wine or their cat or whatever. You know, it's like it's uh, after the, the hard working day when everything was transactional and stressful and serving one specific goal. Now you are this. This is something you do for yourself. Um, I, I feel like the success of a community is that, yes, it should be inclusive. But at what point do you dilute the community and what gives it that signature stamp that keeps it the II, you know? I think it's going to be really interesting to look at this question one year from now, because we are going to be putting into place a new type of referral system and curation system as we are transitioning into being a platform. I teach my hosts and hosts teach their own hosts and everybody teaches everybody to always look out for the community. So if we feel that potentially somebody would not be respecting these extremely loose boundaries, then that person would not be in the entrance for much longer. The same way as in a free society, your safety is the prerequisite for your freedom. And knowing that you are physically and economically safe in, in say, a Western liberal democracy comes from there being people looking after you and there being people that you can call if you are in trouble. And we pretty much run our, quote unquote, virtual city of minds uh, with those principles. But, you know, one thing that you said before that I found very captivating is that I feel that AI is way more of an art form than it is just like an economic model. I think that's what kind of separates it, where... It's not really like a, because I've, I've been like all throughout the community circuit, right? Like I've tried everything and when it becomes highly politicized, which everything is, when it becomes highly economic, which everything is, it's like, why would you participate, right? You're just another neoliberal agent in the finite game. But like in this case, money never comes up, politics really comes up. Like, I'm just really curious how, because I think we're in a massive politics bubble, but like, how does that actually work in practice? I think it's also about knowing that however passionate people are about money and politics, they also welcome a space where that doesn't come up. 
and being very unabashedly that place. The same way as we all love to eat cupcakes, but you don't sit down on the carpet of your gym and eat a cupcake there because now you're there to escape the cupcakes and get on the treadmill. So <laughs> similarly, I think this is how our members and our hosts and our attendees think about these things. Money does come up. We try to create frameworks where we can discuss it in a way that is very constructive to everybody. Work, dating, all the other things also come up. We talk about them from a historical, philosophical or psychological perspective. And when it comes to like more political topics, what I like to do is there should be a dedicated place for this. For example, we have an America section in our forum. I just asked the community. I was like, listen, guys, we've been noticing this. You clearly are super interested. And we did a poll. Do you want to have an America channel? Would that increase your stress? Do you want that thing in this space? Basically, do you want a muffin stand inside the gym? And, you know, 70% of the people were like, yes. And because it starts with this buy-in, you can kind of count on that being continuously a positive place. Because even if we have new members coming in who were not there yet at, during the poll, you can count on other people in the channel kind of keeping up the, the, the standards, right? And we do that with salons as well. Like when I feel like I have a more controversial idea and I'm curious if that would be welcome, I ask older attendees, I ask people in the forum, like, guys, would you be interested in this topic? I'm super interested in the questions of trust, for example, but I wasn't sure what kind of trust should be discussed. Should it be personal life related salon? Should it be about the blockchain? Shouldn't it be about the, I don't know, data ethics? And then it turned out that people are kind of more interested in the general psychology of trust. Like, why do humans feel a need to trust things? Why are we suspicious of each other? How does it work? How does it reflect on like a higher political level? How does it reflect in a mother-child relationship? Like all different layers of, of human interaction. So we said, okay, so we are going to be doing a very generic trust salon. This is what we always do. We do a generic salon if there is a big new topic and then start kind of zooming in on different things. I'm going to be uh, hosting a salon. Um, I think it's in November, whether atheism is a religion. I don't think so, but I'm super happy to hear what other people say because I'm just one participant as I will be facilitating as the host, but I'm not teaching anything in that sense. I'm teaching how to talk about it. So say somebody wanted to throw a dinner party and they wanted to invite all different kinds of people and wanted to ask you, the salon hostess extraordinaire, like, how do I create this dinner where we have constructive and inspiring conversations where people don't end up being confrontational? Like, you don't really want to start a dinner party by saying, here are the rules. I try to create an introduction period at the start of the salon that will create a vibe in an interactive way that is comfortable for everybody there without me doing that. Because you want to create a room that the people who are there like. We did a gender-related salon about after COVID. So how does the pandemic-related you know, lockdowns and economic crises and career shifts, how will these affect gender equality in the West, in, in Asia, wherever the participants are coming from? And I knew that I was going to be sitting in front of 30 strangers coming from all over the world. It's going to be very diverse. And just like the reading list, the introduction is also there to create an overlap between the mental models of the participants, which is um, a prerequisite for a conversation, right? We went around the room and everybody introduced themselves and every person had to answer a prompt question. And the intro question of the gender salon was, when in your life did you feel the most equal? And that's it. It's open. Everybody can take the question whatever they want. And so all the women sitting in front of me said, you know, when my father said he was proud of me, when I won that mathematics award, you know, when I got my job promotion and all the men were sitting in the room and they were like, um, I can't think of anything. No. And another woman went and said, when my husband said he would watch the kids so I can go and give the big presentation. And then the guy came, got the mic and he was like, I can't think of anything, you know, and this went on for like an hour, right? And by the time we actually got to the theoretical part, you don't have to say anything because we laid down the groundwork that 
you are in a room with 30 people, mothers and sons and colleagues and friends and lovers who have a vast variety of human experience. And we can talk about it in a theoretical way, but this is not a theoretical question. So these are frameworks of communication that we can use to make it almost impossible for somebody to, after this, say, you know, you all suck. Or I don't know. I don't even, I can't even imagine. Um, you just saw their faces and they are here with you and you listen to each other. So now let's talk about why, right? That's kind of rare today, especially in the U.S. I'm sure you know about the political division that's just ruining friendships and relationships and other kinds of dynamics. I think that people forget that we are humans and have different experiences or even shared experiences. One of the underrated things that people don't realize in a conversation is just humanizing the other person. You know, our YouTube series is called Humaning. Like, what are you doing? Where are you humaning? It's <laughs> a verb. We need to make it a verb. Was the vi- vice presidential debate. And I thought one of the key moments was when Mike Pence told Kamala Harris that blah, 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 blah. Oh, when I called to congratulate you because I think it was such an amazing achievement or whatever. But just the fact that he brought that in there, I don't know if you caught that, Ani, but I was just like, oh, he called to congratulate her. And it's just these little signals that really help to de-escalate. And, you know. It's funny that that's like so much of an anima now to even be like, I wanted to congratulate you on doing something that's, you know, wholly unique or that's actually very hard to do, right? It's not like anyone can just be vice president, you know, it's not just something that you hand off to anybody. But even that act is now considered like a different standard. Like people are just held to a different standard, I think, because it's okay to be rude to people now and it's okay to treat them very badly and everyone expects that to be the norm. But I also think at the same time, there's something here where I see these salons as, you know, there's like very much a philosophy of salon, of uh, a philosophy of a salon theory that I hope, you know, the I.I. can lead in the future. And I almost think that that, influences the discourse and trickles down because when people see that people can act better you know they'll they'll actually desire that and they'll treat it differently this is what i realized around two years ago and this is why i made that insane decision at the time to say this can be done because i think it's a self-reinforcing process right like you think it's impossible and then you go to salon and then you can see this possible and then you will go and continue you will also host and it you get positively infected with the knowledge that that is possible. And one of my philosophies, and this is something um, I talk about quite a lot at my salons where I host, is that humans are countries and continents. We have so many contradictions, contradictory desires, instincts, priors, ambitions, memories. Everything is always true and its opposite is also true. And Somehow existing with this contradiction, we're doing such a fantastic job at kind of being the captain, you know, and, and keeping all this variety and noise in one direction. So we can be one person that is relatively consistent in his or her actions and plans. I think that if you understand that you are this habitat of, of all these contradictory directions, then you can ex- expect this and expect this from and accept it in other people. Whatever this other person is saying to you, whatever ambition or opinion of theirs they are describing, you know that this is just a tip of the iceberg. You know, there are so many things going on in this person. And I always say that, you know, being okay with this live, real-time, unexpected, always unique combination of a salon room with all these people if you're okay with the contradictions in yourself, you will also be okay with all the contradictions in the room and you will not necessarily find that to equal animosity. It's just like, we are humans. That's why what you're doing is so counterculture because the culture right now is definitely promoting division and what you're creating is promoting dialogue. And I've, I've seen it in personal conversations. I have a friend who is buying into this divisive, if you're not with us, you're against us mentality. And the conversation always bends that way. Even if, even if I don't want to go that way, and even if I try to unify, she will 
try to divide because that's the language, that's the posture of conversations today. And um, I remember one thing that I said to her, I said, you can say whatever you want about me because you're, you're, you're like a sister to me. I will still love you. It's fine. And it's kind of like transcending that. And once you accept the bigger picture and you can see the bigger picture, it changes everything. Absolutely. When you see the greater patterns of human existence, right? And this is why it's so beautiful to bring together ideologically diverse rooms and, and multi-religious groups and academically multidisciplinary groups, because you will find that all the worries, all the pain, all the um, hopes, the ambition, the love, the type of connections we crave, the kind of transitions we go through as humans are so universal. You have a room, you know, talking about dating and, and there will be somebody, you know, married in a monogamous relationship for 50 years. There will be somebody just experimenting with polyamory. There will be somebody in a trio relationship. And you would think all these people have such vastly different lives. And sure, they bring in very interesting experiences from that particular lifestyle. But then you start talking about, you know, love and, and loyalty and responsibilities toward each other and honesty. And suddenly the room lights up because at the salon, everybody has all these questions. Wherever you enter from, you know, you can be coming from Dubai or you can be coming from Bolivia or you can be coming from Finland and you will have the same thoughts and the same worries. And it's so good to, you know, um, discuss it both with like-minded people, but sometimes it's so good to discuss it with somebody who comes from such a different angle and can actually give you insights about your life that you never thought about. Because where else, if not at an internet tech salon, will you be able to talk to a person like that? So to create these meeting spots in the world where people can come together um, and having trust in the people that they can do it. All my work is about giving you trust that if I let you into this room, and give you the mic, and technically you could do anything, you will do something that will be wonderful. Because you came to be wonderful, why wouldn't you be? I'm like, guys, we are all adults here. I trust your judgment. Like, you know, we have a code of conduct that's basically like, you know, please don't sell drugs, okay? Like, I trust you, okay? I'm not going to run around the forum and like delete posts. Like, just don't do it. <laughs> and then people are like, oh, so we are being trusted here, you know? There are rights and responsibilities in the city as a citizen. So, okay. One of the things you mentioned before was, you know, making these like virtual cities. And I found that really fascinating. Are there any like city models that you think of? Is it more like a collection of people or are there certain processes that, like from cities? So there is um, a Hungarian born French architect called Jona Friedman, who came up in the 60s in this concept called the spatial city. So his designs and drawings of the spatial city were kind of the inspirations in how I think about the layout of our virtual city of minds, but nothing more concrete than that. <laughs> you know that old saying, it's like there are three things that you should never talk about at a dinner party, money, sex, and politics. It's funny because you mentioned like when conversations become too politicized, they start going downhill. Politics is, is a very fascinating topic. And like you said, you can talk about politics without talking about politics. That's an art form in itself. How do you talk about politics without talking about politics and getting into that rabbit hole where it's going to be people devolving into a food fight, basically, with words? I will just talk about people's experiences. What is going on with you in your life? Right. And we do talk a lot about money and death and sex and politics because we talk about our own lives and our lives contain all these things because we are humans. And for me, if somebody is talking about their own personal experience and that includes party politics, we are there for that content. And then what you inspire is people listening to one another because information is incredibly powerful and a good conversation is this candy store of new information, either because it's something that you already heard, but not from this person, or because this person is talking about something that you've never heard in any shape or form before. And 
it's very hard not to be open to that if it's expressed in a way that is not designed to offend you personally. It's expressed from the other person's point of view and through the prism of their experience. You know, I think everyone actually wants to discuss those topics at dinner parties, but they want to do it in a non-confrontational way, right? Yeah. And I think it's it's more like an insurance. Just don't do that because you don't know how people will act. But yeah. if you're making it from the ground up and the rules are in place, like, okay, there's a great book called Homo Ludens. It's about like how people play. I think that's what Venkatesh Rao recommended. Really great book. And he talks about the theory of play being it's something that you do in every moment, right? You're just playing all the time. And that's people who, you know, have a great life. You know, they'll be could be drinking, they could be working, they could be just laying in bed and watching TV and they'll be playing, right? And that's how they view their life. And I think that's kind of the mentality you need to discuss these like risque topics. Yeah, like, but also, more- absolutely. But it's also important, like, what are the things that you cannot play about? Like, I know what are the topics that I would not want to moderate a conversation about because they are my hot buttons. I will give you an example. Like, I would not be able to even host a 10-second conversation about the corporal punishment of children. Like, my my participation in the intro is that I would be just screaming. So it's that constructive, right? And so you have to, as an adult and a citizen of the city, city of minds with the rights and responsibilities, you have to be like, guys, I can't do this because I'm a human and humans are irrational. And this is my area of irrationality. I don't think it's irrationality, but like extra amount of irrationality that I don't even... I would not even know what kind of intro question to ask, for example, about this without like everybody crying. And, you know, like you just have to know yourself. Like, where are your limits? Know yourself and also read the room. I'll tell you, I was at a dinner party and there was a couple there and they said that they'd been together since they were 12 years old. So they'd been together for over 20 years or something. So somebody at the dinner party said, you know, I mean, if you guys have been together for this long, you could probably do your own thing and be okay with it like insinuating like an open relationship or something yeah and everyone was just like it's kind of like reading the room but also what you were saying Ani there has to be like a playful element to it and I guess because it was a light-hearted thing we kind of laughed it off but also embarrassed inside too But yeah, the risque topics are what makes a dinner party fun and memorable. And I guess people just need to to know how to approach politics or sex or money or whatever it is. And it's so funny because there's also a selection bias there where over time, I feel like people could say anything to me and I've probably heard it. Like, you know, people really haven't figured out anything new there. And there's like that maturity intellectually where it's like basically on every angle I have been called that you know, it doesn't really affect me. So it's easier for me to play. And I guess that's some sort of intellectual privilege I have of like knowing that, like knowing that it doesn't matter so much. But then there's the people who never had that. And so every criticism is taken as like a real affront to their identity. You know, you need to know when to like raise people up and when it's okay to kind of be a bit more critical and, you know, can they handle that, I guess, while you're playing in this infinite game. I think that's a great point, but also to have the the principle of charity. Like, yes, sometimes people just joke and maybe they tell the wrong joke or they just choose the wrong adjective because they are a little bit sleepy. Like there can be so many different ways of, you know, giving somebody the chance to course correct. Oftentimes you only have read the room after you said something. And if you constantly worry about it, then you will not say anything interesting. (laughs) So I would prefer to people be a little bit shocked and then we smooth it out. Then people just be very kind of cagey about their opinions and, and thoughts. And as a European, to me, joking about people cheating on each other after 20 years sounds like a Tuesday night. (laughs) It's like, where's the, where's the controversy? That's like, Yeah. yeah. It's not that because people cheat here more than anywhere else, but it's just, it's not a verbal, there's no, you know, actual linguistic taboo around that, I think. We always approach things with the principle of charity that this French person just made this joke because in where this person lives, that's a completely friendly thing to say. And (laughs) 
jumps up and says like, yeah, but in like whatever Bulgaria, this is offensive. It's like, no, this person was saying this from their own cultural context and you can laugh or not, you know. Uh, but this is kind of like where manners comes in too, you know, and sometimes people forget that manners was created so that everybody feels comfortable. If you're at a dinner, there are certain standards of manners to not make other people feel uncomfortable. And they always say like the best manners is when you don't point out when somebody has bad manners. Yeah, probably, like very meta. There was this beautiful concept in Eastern philosophies about one's garden, that every individual is the soul inside a garden, and you don't go into the garden. It's this person's kind of Paracelini, and you, you respect it. You assume it's there. They don't have to come out with a, you know, um, torch and a, and a pitchfork to chase you away. Uh, you just assume that, that you know, um, they are surrounded by this buffer that we don't touch. And if they want to come out of it and share something very personal, we are there to hear it and to respond kindly and openly and with curiosity um, and playfulness. But you're not going to march in. One yeah. thing I've seen also is that there are just way more polymaths in this world than I previously expected. Like I never imagined the range of, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's dead. We'll never have another Stefan Zweig. Like that's just not possible in this era. But actually, it definitely is. I didn't realize there were so many and they're very much out there, which is it's uh, almost like you have the II class, you have like the Twitter class, and then you have like the third and fourth estate. And so it's like the re-founding of the intellectual movement actually starts with quite niche communities focused on like intellectual capital. And then it just disperses downwards until you have people who might fit in those categories. Maybe they don't know it or maybe they're not interested enough, but it is the easiest time in history to go and really be great at everything. And I've see, I see that every day now, like so many people just come out of the woodwork and surprise me with all the stuff they've done. And um, yeah, it's like mind boggling. You know, like it's it's a wonderful part of just being online that nobody talks about. Like, how are these people so smart? I don't I just don't comprehend. I, I'm amazed every day by the sheer intelligence of people in and around the internet. And I always say like we are multidisciplinary, not that in the sense that, oh, we take an engineer and sit her down next to a philosopher, but that every single person in the internet act is multidisciplinary as an individual already. Right. And I think that's the future. I think this two centuries of specialization, this was not natural. This is not how people actually think. We are full of like transposable knowledge and curiosity is limitless. If you're curious about one thing, you will be curious about something else as well, right? And you will want to employ your talents developed in one area on something else and that's beautiful and, and we have to create the playgrounds for that. More playgrounds for curiosity? That's something we can get behind. We're so excited for the II's next phase. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. To learn more about the interintellect, visit interintellect.com. To keep up with Anna, follow her on Twitter at the Anna Gat. That's T H E A N N A. G-A-T. And don't forget to follow Conservative Curious too. Until next time, stay curious.